0: 1 John 2, 18 through 27. You can find this on page 1021 of the Blue Pew Bible. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him.
1: Did you know that you're doing pretty much everything the wrong way? According to the seemingly infinite and often purposeless wisdom of the internet, there is a better way to do all sorts of common tasks. So one clickbait list offers 27 things that you're messing up every day and offers you a new and better way to live. Common mistakes include the way you wash your hands, not long enough, the frequency with which you shower too often, how you chill your champagne, You're supposed to add salt to the ice to make it colder faster. But don't make it too cold because that's another mistake some people make. You're not doing it right when it comes to placing items in your refrigerator. Uh, Milk and other things that spoil shouldn't be on the door because it's warmer there. And finally, and perhaps most importantly for your personal well-being, the manner in which you insert bobby pins in your hair is all wrong. The wavy side goes down, please. Well, we might smile at how inane and exaggerated and hysterical these types of lists can be, but I think the the fact that these lists are all over the internet probably tells us something about ourselves. If people didn't click on them, if they didn't make money, they wouldn't be out there. I think what these kinds of lists are capitalizing on is a a low-level fear that we have that we're missing out on something that there's some sort of unspoken desire in us to find that piece of information that's gonna take our lives to the next level, that sort of key that's gonna unlock everything. Well, we've been considering the New Testament letter of 1 John over the past months, and the people in this, to, to whom this ancient letter uh, was written were perhaps not too different from us. If you remember, there had recently been a split in this church Some false teachers and even some of their followers, perhaps, went out, as John says in verse 19 of our passage that Natalie just read for us. And so John is writing to encourage and to instruct those who have been left behind. And it seems from our passage this morning that what these false teachers were doing was offering the church a new and supposedly better way to do things. These false teachers were saying to the church, look, you don't know it, but you've you've been doing it wrong. There's a better way. There's a better path. You're missing out on something crucial. It just happens to be what we can provide for you. And so as we're gonna see, John is writing to encourage the church that in fact, the Jesus that had been proclaimed to them was all that they needed. There is no special knowledge there's no secret trick. They had everything necessary to inherit eternal life. And so as we think about this passage in front of us, let's, let's un- try to understand it under sort of three headings. Let's look at three things. First, let's look and see the threat to the church. Second, let's look at the truth that they'd heard. And then finally, the one that they needed. So the threat to the church, the truth that they'd heard, and the one that they needed. So let's start by looking at the threat to the church. We can start there in verse 18. John writes this. He says, Children, it's a common way for him to address the church. It's a a sign of affection. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So John tells us twice there that It is the last hour. He says it at the beginning of the verse. He says, the last hour. At the very end, he says, therefore, we know it is the last hour. So what does that mean? The authors of the New Testament understood that the arrival of Jesus, the Son of God in human flesh, the arrival of Jesus had ushered in a new and final period in human history. Jesus, the eternal Son of God in human flesh, died on the cross as a sacrifice and a substitute for our sins. He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. He then ascended into heaven, and he has promised to come and to judge the world. He's gonna return from heaven and usher in a new heaven and a new earth that will last for all eternity. And so the authors of the New Testament understand that they and we are living in a period of time between Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension on one hand, and when he returns from heaven to judge the world and usher in eternity on the other. We are living in the last days, in that period of time between those two events. Now this period of time, these last days could go on indefinitely. When John says that this is the last hour, he's not saying like literally we've got an hour before Jesus comes back. Over and over again, the Bible reminds us that God is generally not in a hurry to accomplish his purposes, and that his timeline is his own. But these are the last days in the sense that everything that needs to be accomplished in order to bring about that final eternal state, it has been accomplished. Jesus has done it. We are on the clock. We are waiting for Jesus to return. And so these are the last days, or as John puts it here to sort of heighten the the urgency and the drama, it is the last hour. The way we know that that's true, according to John in verse 18, is the presence of Antichrist. And he says there, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come. Okay, what does that mean? Well, again, the New Testament talks about a powerful figure who will rise up at the very end of time to oppose God. So Jesus, particularly in Mark's gospel and in Matthew chapter 24, he warns us about false prophets, false Christs, who will come in order to deceive people with great signs and wonders. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes about a lawless one who will deceive many before he's ultimately vanquished by Jesus at his coming. In Revelation 12 and 13, we read about a beast who deceives the earth and makes war against the followers of Jesus. And so the picture that emerges from the New Testament is that there will be a great deceiver at the end of time who will arise at the end of history in the period of time that that immediately precedes the return of Christ. But what John's telling us here is that there's also a sense in which there will be a massive number of smaller, lesser antichrists along the way. So Jesus and and Paul and Revelation point us forward to a a sort of capital A Antichrist, this sort of figure of deception who will oppose God and his people. And what John's telling us here is that's true, and there are also many little A Antichrists along the way. Deceivers, who may not have the, the power and the influence of that great final Antichrist, but whose work is consistent with his goals and methods. So John reminds them here in verse 18, you've heard that the Antichrist, capital A, the big one, is coming. He says, and so many little Antichrists have already come. Now why is John bringing this up? Well, it turns out he's trying to explain to them what it is that's been going on in their church. There in verse 26, it's clear, he's not talking about some obscure, far-off, apocalyptic figure, what he wants to talk to them about are the false teachers that have gone out from their congregation. He says there in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The antichrists that John has in his mind are the false teachers that had plagued this church and who had recently left John's saying they are deceivers, they are liars, they taught things about Jesus that aren't true. They opposed Jesus and his people. As such, they showed themselves to be in the spirit of and in league with the Antichrist. There in verse 19, John says that their departure from the church served the purpose of demonstrating that they had never really belonged to the company of faithful believers. So we read there in 1 John 2.19, speaking of these false teachers, these deceivers, these antichrists. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, if they belonged to us, we might say, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, don't misunderstand what John's saying here. Some Christian cults and sects have used this text to show that anyone who leaves their group is really not one of God's people. That's not what John is saying here. You have to remember, this was a time and a place where there was only one Christian community in an area. It's not like our situation, where there are faithful churches all over the place that you could be part of. In those days, to leave the church was to leave the faith altogether. That's simply not true today. You can resign your membership at Sterling Park Baptist Church, not that we want you to, but you can. And you can go to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. You can go to Cascades Bible Church. And we don't understand that you are leaving the faith. We don't understand that you're showing yourself never to have been a Christian. It's not so much that these false teachers left the church. It's that they left the truth. The truth on which the church had been founded. It's the false teacher's departure from sound doctrine. It was really the damning evidence of their spiritual shipwreck. He he says that their leaving served to show that they never really belonged to the church. They'd never really embraced the truth of the gospel. They were never really part of God's people. Now what exactly was wrong with these teachers? What was the nature of their false doctrine? How were they trying to deceive the church We've already seen in 1 John some examples that these false teachers, these little antichrists, in chapter one, verse six, we see that they walked in the darkness. They claimed to have no sin, John, 1 John 1, 1.8. They failed to keep God's commandments, 1 John 2.4. They hated their brothers and sisters, 1 John 2.11. They loved the world, 1 John 2.15. But here in our passage, we see yet another piece of evidence that stands against them. Look there in verse 22. John says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So that's the thing. That's what makes John call these teachers out. It's not just that they don't love and they don't obey. They were actually denying that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, now what exactly does that mean? To deny that Jesus is the Christ. So Christ is the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah simply means anointed one. So in ancient times, if you were sort of set up for an important office, you were oftentimes anointed with oil. Oil would be poured over your head. So if you became king of Israel... If you were appointed as a priest, a prophet, you'd be anointed with oil. So the Messiah is the anointed one. As the Old Testament goes on, it becomes clear that this this anointed one, this Messiah, was going to be a king in the line of King David. That he was gonna be a deliverer, a, a redeemer sent by God to save Israel from their enemies and to restore them to proper worship. And it's clear from the Gospel accounts that Jesus came as that Messiah that he is, in the Greek, the Christ. And what we see here is that for John, the idea of Jesus being the Christ is is tied up with the idea that he is the son of God. Right, we even saw that in Psalm 2, where, where it talks about the king also being the son of God. Jesus comes as the king in David's line, who is the eternal son of God. And John seems to pick up on that idea here at the end of verse 22 to deny that Jesus is the Christ is to deny the Father and the Son. There in verse 23, to deny that Jesus is the Christ is, he says, to deny the Son. John says that's tantamount to denying the Father as well. You can understand why. The Father is the one who sent the Son to save us. God the Father is the one who is well pleased with God the Son. God the Father is the one who has loved his Son from all eternity. And so to deny the Son, to deny that he is the Christ, to deny that he is the eternal Son of God in human flesh, to fail to give him proper honor and glory, well, it's basically the same thing as denying the Father. And we see there in verse 23 the reverse is true as well. To confess that Jesus is the Christ is to to have God the Son and God the Father. So John says there in verse 23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Later on in 1 John, we'll see that he talks on one hand about denying that Jesus has come in the flesh. And on the other hand, he talks about believing that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And in 2 John uh, 7, we read this helpful parallel to what John writes here. 2 John 7, he says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Okay, that sounds familiar. That's what we're talking about today. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So when you put all the data together, it's clear that these false teachers had a distorted a, a low view of Jesus. So it wasn't that they despised him. It wasn't that they wanted to be part of another religion. They promoted Jesus. They quoted Jesus. They claimed to love Jesus and everything that he stood for. But their teaching about who Jesus was failed to give him the glory and the honor that he was due. Their insufficient understanding of Jesus robbed him of the majesty that belongs to him. They weren't confessing that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. Now, in contrast to that, listen to the exalted ways that the authors of the New Testament talk about Jesus. I've just chosen three passages out of of the many that we could choose from, but just listen to get a sense of how high a view they had of who Jesus is. So in Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, now add to that what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter one, starting in verse one. he describes a vision that he has of Jesus. He says this, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, We could keep piling up examples, but hopefully you see that the New Testament speaks about the person, the identity, the glory, the majesty of Jesus in in the strongest ways imaginable. He is the image of God, through whom and for whom everything was created. He is the Son of God, upholding the universe by the word of his power. He's the radiance of God's glory. When God's glory shines, what does it look like? It looks like Jesus. He's the one with eyes like fire, the first and the last, the living one, the one with keys to death and Hades. So what's obvious from those passages and from what John says here in 1 John 2 is that you cannot fail to do justice to the glory and the majesty and the divinity of Jesus. You can't deny that he is the Christ The Son of God, the King sent to redeem us. If someone claims to be a Christian but denies those fundamental truths about Jesus' identity, even if they seem pro Jesus, even if they say nice things about him, even if they are genuinely nice people and are very sincere in their belief, according to John, according to God's word, they are a liar, they are a deceiver. And so, friends, we need to be very clear and very careful. This is not a small thing. John says that if we deny Jesus the glory and the honor that he is due, we deny God the Father as well. You see that there in verse 22. If we deny the Son in this way, verse 23, we do not have God the Father. We are aligning ourselves with the spirit of the Antichrist. And so we, as a church... Need to be very clear about who Jesus is and what glory and honor is due to him. We cannot accept the very common idea that, <coughs> excuse me, all religions are basically the same, that they lead us to the same place. If Jesus is who the Bible says that he is, then you cannot deny him and know the truth. So, with all due respect to our Jewish friends, our Muslim friends, our Mormon friends, our Jehovah's Witness friends, our Oneness Pentecostal friends, they do not believe the truth, and according to God's word, they do not know him. That's not us trying to be territorial or exclusive or unkind. That's simply us trying to hold firmly onto what the Bible says about Jesus. We need to be clear on that point, and that means that we need to be careful, careful about what teachers we listen to. Not everyone who publishes a book carried in a Christian bookstore, not everyone who speaks at a Christian conference, not everyone you see on the TV or hear on the radio talking about the Bible, not everyone is a reliable guide. The work of Antichrist is seen in anyone who denies the identity of Jesus. John says that person is a liar par excellence. There in verse 22, who is the liar? but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Okay, so let's move then and consider our second point, that is the truth that the church had heard. So that's the the danger to the church, these false teachers. Let's move on and see what John says about the truth that they had heard. He is writing to warn the church about these false teachers, about their anti-Christian denial of Jesus' identity. But he's actually quite confident uh, in these believers that they have everything they need for their spiritual well-being. He says there in verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. John isn't worried that his readers don't know the truth, that they don't know what he's talking about. He's not writing because they're completely confused and have no idea what's going on. They know the truth about Jesus, he says there. And it's in that light that he's instructing them. He is reminding them of what they already know. He's reinforcing something that's already in them. Well, how is that? Why is John confident that they know the truth? Look there at the beginning of verse 24. John says, let what you heard from the beginning, abide in you. So that the church has heard something from the beginning. He says that they're at the beginning of verse 24. He says it again at the end of verse 24. They are to let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Okay, so what is it that they heard from the beginning? Well, it's the message that was preached to them by John himself, it's the apostolic teaching about Jesus. It's the gospel message, the truth that initially launched them out on their Christian journey, the thing that that they heard at the beginning. It's the good news that we've been celebrating this morning. It's the message that we celebrated last Sunday. It's the truth that we will keep celebrating, keep remembering, keep repeating, keep rehashing until Jesus comes back. It's the truth that all of us are sinners, rebels against the God who created us, that we've lived for ourselves, we've done what's right in our own eyes, we haven't loved God or worshiped God as he deserves. But God the Father, in his great love for sinners like us, sent God the Son to take on human flesh. Jesus, the Christ, lived a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly Father, he lived the life that you and I should have lived, and in love he gave up his life on the cross. Dying the death that we should have died. There he took on himself the penalty, the the punishment that his people deserve for their sins. And he rose from the dead, triumphing over everything that keeps us from living with God forever. And now this risen and ascended Jesus offers salvation. He offers eternal life, as John says there in verse 25, to anyone who will turn from their sins and put their trust in him. This is the message revealed in God's Word. It's the only message that brings your soul forgiveness and eternal life. The Jesus that we see in the Bible is the true Jesus, the only one who can save you. It's the message that this church heard from the beginning. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the message you heard at the beginning. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If you sit here this morning with saving faith in Christ, that means at some point you heard the word about him. You heard the message. You heard the word of Christ. And God used that message to produce saving faith in you. And so look at what John tells the church to do with this message that they'd heard from the beginning. Does he tell them to refine it? To improve it, to add to it, to make it more attractive to outsiders, to uh, whittle it down a little bit to, to fit our culture's definition of love, to make it a bit more obviously practical and psychologically helpful. No, not at all. There in verse 24, John tells us what to do with this message. He says, let it abide in you. Let what you heard from the beginning, that message that saved you, let it abide in you. Let it take up residency in your heart. Let it dwell in you richly. Let it come in and and rearrange all the furniture in your soul. Let it be the thing that you think about when you daydream. Let it be the lens through which you view the world. Let it be the, the filter through which you approach your fears and anxieties. Let it be the truth that gives you strength in the face of uncertainty in the future. John says this message must abide. You could could translate, maybe we would say remain in you. It's got to get down deep. And when it does, if it does, John tells us something extraordinary there at the end of verse 24. He, He says there, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. When the gospel message, the truth about Jesus the Christ, when it abides in you, when it remains in you, when it lives in you, John says you abide, you remain, you live in the Son and in the Father. You see what John's saying to the church? He's saying we preached Christ to you, the real deal the Son of God, come to save you. And when that message gets down deep in your life, it keeps you in the love of God. It will keep you in communion, in relationship with the Son and with the Father. You will dwell and remain in them. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, if what John is talking about here is not yet true of you, if you have not confessed yet that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God in human flesh, the Redeemer sent by God to save you, if the message of his death and resurrection to bring about your salvation, if that hasn't taken up residence in your life and recreated you at a spiritual level, then, friend, this is where you begin. You begin with God's word to you. You begin with the Bible. As Paul tells us, faith comes from hearing the word about Jesus, the Christ. Faith comes from hearing the word about Jesus who loved us and died for us and rose for us. Friend, we have nothing else to offer you because there's no other message that can save you. There's nothing else that can bring you out of your sin and into a relationship with God. There is no self-esteem. There is no self-discovery that can make you right with your creator. So, friend we would love to read the Bible with you. We would love to help you understand the message that John's readers heard from the beginning. Perhaps you could join the Christianity Explored class that's beginning in a few weeks. Right, that program is based on the idea that we see in this passage that what we need most is to look at God's word and to understand the message of salvation that it carries to us. So if you have questions, if you want to read the Bible, if you want to be part of Christianity Explored, please talk to the person who invited you this morning. Talk to me after the service. Talk to anyone you've seen up here. We would be delighted to help you. And for those of us who have been brought to faith in Jesus through this message, I think the application of this text in our lives is fairly clear. John wants this message to abide in us. As individuals and as a church, this message has to percolate down deep. It needs to be massaged into every corner, every nook in our soul. And friend, this is a a burden off your back. You, You don't actually need to do anything else. You're not missing out on anything important. You're not doing it wrong, no matter what the internet says. You don't actually have to go searching for the next thing, the new thing, something else, something better. There is no great insight out there. There is no secret key to a higher life. This is it. Let the message that you heard from the beginning abide in you. You simply need to stay here. Not so much in this room or even in this church, but but here in the word of God. Do not be moved from this message, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ sent to die for you and to rise for you so that you might have eternal life. As a congregation, this means we're not we're committed to not being innovative. We do not want to be creative. Not because we're grumpy or stodgy or stuffy or opposed to things that are new. No, we don't want to be creative or innovative because there is no other message that can save anyone. There is no other message that can bring sinners like us to abide with the Son and in the Father. And that's why we get together every Sunday, morning and evening. This is why we have equipping classes and Bible studies and small groups. This is why we teach the kids week in and week out in the Gospel Project. This is why the preteens and the youths have their classes This is why you read your Bible during the week. Not because we have something new to say. Not because we wanna hear something new. Not because you're gonna find something completely different this time. But because we need this word. We need this message of salvation. We need it to abide in us, remain in us, live in us, make its home in us. And that doesn't happen magically. It's something to which we must attend. It's something that requires our most diligent effort and even our sacrifice. There may be other things in your life, scratch that, I'm sure that there are other things in your life that seem more entertaining, more fun, more immediately restful, more conducive to a home that runs smoothly or a productive work week. But none of those things come with the promise that John mentions there in verse 25. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So we've seen the threat to the church, false teachers that denied Jesus' true, full identity. We've seen the truth that the church heard, this gospel message that that must abide in us. Let's conclude briefly by looking at the one that they need. If you see there in verse 20, we read this. John says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So John affirms there at the end of verse 20 that the church has everything that it needs. They all have knowledge. Again, the false teachers seem to have claimed to have obscure knowledge special insight that was going to be the key to a higher spiritual experience. But the truth of the gospel isn't something that can only be grasped by the best and the brightest. It doesn't require an advanced degree or some special program. If you remember back in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 31, the Lord made a promise to his people, a promise that he was going to inaugurate a new covenant. And in that covenant, all of God's people would know the Lord. And here... John is confident that that's true of the church. He says, You all have knowledge. And the reason why that's true, he says there, is because they've been anointed by the Holy One. Now it's interesting. Jesus is the anointed one, right? That's what the word Messiah means. That's what it means to say Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. But here John says, You've been anointed. That word anointed was most likely a term that the false teachers had adopted for their own purposes. Uh, They seemed to be teaching that there was a special knowledge, a a special insight that served as a, a spiritual anointing for those who'd been sort of brought in. So here John's turning their language on its head. He's telling the church, you all are anointed. Not with some new teaching from a false prophet, but by the Holy One himself. Now, what's he talking about? In John's gospel, the Holy One is used, that phrase, that term, that name is used of Jesus himself. You see that in John 6 verse 69. It's likely that John sees believers as having something, or we should probably say someone, poured out on them by Jesus himself, by the Holy One. But what or or who is that anointing? Well, Jesus himself was anointed, right? He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. So what, what did Jesus' anointing look like? Well, he wasn't anointed with oil, at least not as, we, not as far as we know, not like a normal priest or a normal king would have been. Instead, what we see is that Jesus was anointed. The, the thing that was poured out on him, or the, we should say the person who was poured out on him, was the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, We see that in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus points back to a prophecy from Isaiah that he was fulfilling to the effect that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on him. We see this truth in Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 10 where he says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. And so what John is saying here is that if you are a believer, then Jesus himself has poured out God the Holy Spirit on you into your life into your soul, into your mind, into your heart. The Holy Spirit is not the possession of a few special believers, but every genuine Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling within them. John makes the point clear there in verse 27. He says, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, And is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. John says, you've been anointed, you've been smeared, you've been rubbed, you've been soaked with an anointing that you received from Jesus himself. And that anointing is the Holy Spirit, the one that Jesus promised would teach us and bring to to mind all truth and all knowledge. So he says, as a result, you have no need for anyone to teach you. He says, the Spirit abiding in you, living in you, teaches you the truth about everything. John says, you're not lacking in anything because you have the Holy Spirit. Now, don't misunderstand. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life doesn't mean that you know everything. It doesn't mean that you have nothing to learn. It doesn't mean that no one outside of you can inform you of anything. Because you're just going to sit back and wait for the Spirit to directly reveal truth to you. That's obviously not what John's saying. After all, he's writing a letter to them, trying to instruct them and teach them. He's trying to correct them in some ways. And part of the work that the Holy Spirit does, according to Ephesians chapter 4, is to give some people in the church the gift of teaching so that the church can be instructed and edified and built up. Instead, what John is saying here is that you don't need to be taught. You don't You don't need something else. You don't need some innovative, new, special teaching like the kind the false prophets were selling. You don't need more information about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. You have everything you need. You've you've heard the Word from the beginning, it abides in you, and you've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Can you see the connection between the Spirit of God and the, the Word of God that He's inspired? God's Spirit normally works to change us and shape us and give us spiritual life through His Word. The Bible is a bit like kindling. When we read it, when we listen to it, when we hear it preached, when we let it abide in us, it's like we're building a massive campfire. We are are stacking up kindling, We we are stacking up fuel around our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes and sets it ablaze. Without Him, the Bible is just an inert pack of sticks. We have no power to set it on fire. The only thing it can do is is condemn us and confound us. But when we're anointed with the Spirit, with, with the message that we heard from the beginning, it begins to blaze, it begins to roar. The Spirit is the one who has taught us, who's made the word come alive. Can you see how good, you see how kind God is to you? If you're a Christian, can you see how much God loves you? He didn't take a thousand puzzle pieces and shake the box up and dump it out on the table and say, good luck figuring that out. No, he gave us his truth, and he even gave us the spirit to teach us And to cause us to believe what we would never believe on our own. God has done everything so that we can know the truth. And so the application for us is there in verse 27. John says, abide in him. There's a lot of abiding in this passage. There's a lot of remaining. The gospel message abides in us. And so we abide in the Son and in the Father Verse 27, the Holy Spirit abides in us. And here John says we are to abide in him. On the first read, it might seem like John's telling us to abide in the Holy Spirit. Certainly not a bad idea. But in the very next verse, in verse 28, which we'll think about next week, Lord willing, he makes it clear that the in him that we're supposed to abide in is actually the Lord Jesus himself. The thought of verse 27 is that Jesus the Christ has anointed you with his spirit in order to give you a knowledge of his saving work. And so you should abide. You should remain in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's the goal of this passage. The false teachers wanted to give the church some other Jesus. They did not want believers to remain in him. They wanted to relocate them to some other faith. So John reminds them, he reminds us, you have what you need. <coughs> Excuse me. The message preached to you by the apostles, the message of Jesus the Christ, crucified and risen for you, lit on fire by the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent to anoint you, when you remain in that message, you remain in Jesus. So there's perhaps no better way for us to remain in that message, to abide in it, and to, to live in what we've heard than to come to the Lord's table together. It's here at the table that that old, old story, that that message that you've heard, the gospel truth that Jesus, uh, the Christ, his flesh was broken for us, his blood was shed for us at the cross, that message is put on display for us yet again. This is the same supper we took last week. If the Lord tarries and allows, this is the same supper we'll take next week. Not because it didn't work last time, not because we're afraid it's not going to take today, but because we abide, we remain in this message, and we remain in him. Now, before we come to the table, it is appropriate for us to take a moment to examine our lives. That's the encouragement that Paul gives to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11:28. 28. He says, let a person examine themselves, therefore, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup." The Lord's Supper is for all who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus, for those who have demonstrated that by obeying Jesus' command to be baptized, and those who are connected to a church that believes that message that we've heard this morning through gospel membership. The Lord's invitation to come to the table is a gracious one. So. He extends it to you not on the basis of what you've done, not on the basis of how well your week went, but because of what he's done for you. Uh, The Lord's table is not a performance review. It's not an opportunity for you to look back at your week and, and see how you did and what feelings of guilt and unworthiness you might have. This is a meal for sinners who are saved by grace. But that said, it's not something to be taken lightly. If you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, then this meal is not for you, at least not yet. So instead of coming forward, we'd encourage you just to stay where you are and use this time to think about your need for a Savior. We would love nothing more than to welcome you to the table of the Lord at some point in the future. Or if you claim to be a follower of Christ, but if your life is marked by sin that you have no intention to turn from, if you insist on holding on to bitterness against some brother or sister in Christ, then before you come to the table, you must do what Christians do. Turn from your sin. Confess it to the Lord. Turn your back on it. And only then come to the Lord's table. This is a meal for repentant sinners. So what we'll do is take a moment to silently confess our sins to the Lord And then I'll lead us in a corporate confession of sin. And then we'll sing and we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray.